Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Jeff Grammer of the Albuquerque Journal, and you're listening to the latest edition of the Talking Grammar podcast. This will be episode number nine, and it's been a while. It's been a while since episode eight when the first eight episodes of this podcast focused exclusively on Lobo basketball and Lobo hoops, which is my primary beat at the Albuquerque Journal. But as I've said before, it's not the only topic I want to delve into on this podcast. So today we do veer off course just a little bit from Lobo Hoops. Still got some college basketball themes going here. But uh, today I talk with Russ Bradbird. He's an English professor at the I'm sorry at New Mexico State University, and he's also a former coach at UTEP. Coached with Don Haskins, the legendary uh, coach of the minors. The Bear, and he also coached at New Mexico State for both Neil McCarthy and for Lou Henson. And it's Russ's time coaching for Neil McCarthy that that got us to this book, All the Dreams We've Dreamed, which is his latest book. And as the book cover says, it's a story of hoops and handguns on Chicago's west side. And I read this book last week in, in just about a week's time, and it's a fascinating book. Uh, full disclosure, I'm a fan of Russ's from before reading this book. He wrote a book called Patty on the Hardwood many years ago, and it was uh, kind of chronicling his season as a professional coach in Ireland. And on that team was a friend of mine from college by the name of Brandon Mason, who the former Aggie who is now an assistant coach on the UNM Lobo basketball staff. And we do today in my conversation with Russ, um, veer off course a little bit, talk a little bit about Brandon Mason, but that's certainly not the primary focus of today's podcast or the conversation I had with Russ which coincides with a article that runs in the Thursday, May 3rd um, edition of the Albuquerque Journal. That's also the early hours of May 3rd is when I'm recording this podcast and setting it up from interviews I had with both him and Sean Harrington earlier this week. But his book, All the Dreams We've Dreamed, is is the primary focus of the book, is the life and the journey of Sean Harrington, who Russ recruited to New Mexico State out of Chicago in the 90s. And Sean Harrington's a former point guard for the Aggies for the 95-96 season and only spent one year in Las Cruces. Uh, led the team in assists, led the team in steals, third leading scorer. He was good. Um, he was a good player. He's a junior college guy that um, left Las Cruces after one season and kind of felt, you know, it just wasn't a good fit anymore. 20 years after the fact, he finds out from Russ Bradbird, who who has sort of this maybe a little bit of a guilty conscience after all these years about how that happened. And he he has some pretty revealing kind of guilt that he, he talks, talks about in this book, which includes how he and Neil McCarthy and, and the coaching staff at New Mexico State kind of ran Sean off. And that was not out of the norm for how they treated basketball players in uh, in Las Cruces at the time. They when after an injury to Sean, they didn't think he'd be as good, so they recruited over him, quit engaging with him as much, probably didn't show as much interest in him. Sean felt, wow, I don't really fit in here anymore, so I guess I'm going to leave, when in actuality it was probably set in play by the coaching staff, sort of just making him not feel welcome in general, and, and Russ is pretty open about that. Russ and Sean now, since 2014, when Sean was shot, and... Um, which kind of set us down this path for this book, they've become very close friends. Um, Sean, Russ certainly has advocated for Sean to help him with healthcare, help him with attention for this for the, for the book. When he was out of work, Russ was trying to do fundraisers for him, which he did some in Las Cruces with Lou Henson, with Paul Weir, who's now the Lobos coach. Um, certainly got him in touch with others. 
and and just did a lot of advocating for him and, and through that decided you know what i know this story better than anybody and maybe i should write the book about it and and get more attention this is a story that has been featured in the new york times and sean's story has been featured on hbo's real sports with bryant gumbel but it is this book that is the uh really dives the deepest into the entire story but also has some parallels that are just troubling about the west side of Chicago and the gun violence going on there and how many connections to the Marshall High School community where where Sean played, where Sean was featured at least briefly in the in the documentary from the 90s Hoop Dreams and this is where Sean works and coaches basketball now even though he's wheelchair bound since the shooting all these connections to, to players and coaches and family members who have been shot in that area because of the the gun epidemic in Chicago is it's troubling. It's something we in New Mexico certainly don't have any idea about. But uh, this book, this book does a fascinating and, and thorough job of of really revealing how tragic this, it, how this is ripping apart communities in the area. And he uses basketball to as the out as the way to sort of as the vessel to tell this story and Sean's story in particular. And I talked with both Russ and Sean about that. And Sean's story, for those that don't know in 2014 was driving his 15 then 15 year old daughter to school in Chicago and in a case of mistaken identity gun gunfire rang out they thought Sean was somebody he wasn't and he protected his daughter as bullets were flying into his car took a bullet including one that damaged his spinal cord and that is why Sean is in a wheelchair to this day and this book talks about all that and it's a fascinating book Russ did a really good job and I want to share with you guys today my conversation with both Sean talking about that morning when he was shot and Russ talking about the journey he's had in writing this book. So as a little bit of a warning, these these were interviews for a story I was writing. These weren't really podcast centric setups. I wasn't just having a conversation with them. So there's editing involved here in the podcast. I, I just pull some of their quotes and uh, that is the setup for this. But I do want to share it with you. I think it's some compelling stuff. Again, I can't recommend the book enough that Russ wrote. It is All the Dreams We've Dreamed, and it went on sale on Tuesday. So I highly recommend that, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. We're going to start it off with Russ Bradbird and, and why he started writing the book. Later on in this podcast, I also talk with Sean Harrington um, about life since the shooting and, and what's next for him in his life. All right, so here we go. Let's get started with my conversation with Russ Bradbird, author of All the Dreams We've Dreamed. Start this kind of really early on. Well, he got he got shot in in the end of January of 2014, so over four years ago. But it was it was the, the entire first year. I was just trying to get other people to write about him because I thought you know my that's uh, you know I, I got I got caught up in advocating for him. It just kind of drove me crazy that this guy had done this heroic deed and his you know his paychecks had stopped and his health insurance had stopped. And uh, it, it, it sort of drove me crazy, and I just thought, and the more people ignored the story, the more obsessed I got with, you know, getting people to write about the story and calling attention, you know, blasting it on Facebook and and that kind of thing. Uh, but it, it was, it, I, so I was doing that for a year and trying to get, and, uh, you know, and one writer finally said to me, look, you said that you, I, wake, I was waking up in the morning thinking, what can I do to help Sean? Going to bed at night thinking, what can I do to help Sean? And I just, you know, and I was just, I was thinking about him all the time. 
and what a dramatic story it was. And so that's when when one the writer in the book says to me, Alex Kotlowitz says, "Why don't you write about it yourself?" I just thought, yeah, I'm already knee deep in this, you know, and I know the story better than anybody. And I thought, you know, I did, you know, I, I thought I had sort of an insider's view. But the hard thing to do was, to, you know, to hold myself accountable for, you know, for some of the things that had happened in his life as well. And I think he really stresses the stresses what's going on with his daughters and really worries about it, you know. And, and as you know, each time each time a kid gets killed, he, you know, he really takes it to heart, you know, like, uh, you know, it, it, you know, it's like watching the Lobos. If they lose, you're sad to get to your car, but if you're coaching the team, you can't sleep. Right. And I think, you know, I think, I think it's sort of his, you know, his team is, you know, the Marshall team has been really decimated. Uh, you know, the whole family has been sort of wrecked by this gun violence stuff. So well, I, 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 it's not, a, it's not the happy, the book sort of hints at a somewhat happy ending, but I, I, I think he's in for a long, you know, he's in, you know, he's in for, a, you know, I, I think he's in for a long, long, you know, years and years of struggle. I, I can't, you know, I, or, or I just, I've seen a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, kids in the, on the West Side community that don't have a father in their life. And here's Sean, who, you know, had all, every chance to get out of the West Side, but, you know, made a conscious decision to come, to come back because he had kids there. And so I, I found that very compelling, but I don't know, I don't think he'd be, I don't think he would be happy about it. I mean, I, I, I don't agree with him on, I don't think everything has a purpose. I don't think God's hand is in any of this. Yeah. I, I mean, we have, we have, we have, you know, stark disagreements about, you know, um, you know, about the meaning of this and what is, you know, and I want him to be the spokesman for the anti-gun movement, but, and I think he, I think he's morphing into that, but, you know, we, I think we have different lenses that we see what happened. And I don't want to oversimplify this book, but I want to read one paragraph from your book on page 170 that I think kind of summarizes okay. the, the gist of everything. And you tell me if you agree. Okay. Sean and Triplett had grown up under similar circumstances on the west side, battling poverty, moving from apartment to apartment, and losing a family member to gun violence. Triplett had few op—I'm sorry, Triplett had fewer options, a narrower margin of, for error, and he made some unwise decisions. Of course, Sean made what society was, would say were the right choices at every turn, and he too got shot. In, in a way, to me, that sort of encapsulates everything here, because you have, one, you have two guys growing up in the same circumstances in a lot of ways in Chicago, and, and the horrendous stuff that's going on in Chicago with gun violence, but one of them did what people would say is the right thing to do. He went on to college, you know, he's taking care of his daughters, he's, he has a job. Um, and, and one of them maybe made some unwise choices in his high school days, and, and yet the, the same end result happened to both of them. So is there really a way out of this is, is sort of the, the hopeless sort of question, I think, that uh, kind of is a theme throughout the book. Am I oversimplifying well, I it? Right, yeah. No, I think that's right, and I think I think I think that's right, and I think had Sean's mother been killed when he was sixteen, he might have gone down a very different path. You know, he was I think he was uh, you know he was twenty eight I think when his mother got killed, and and, and 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 I think that's part of the, the the idea of chance in the book and the domino effect of the car getting stolen. I think is an important factor. Like if, if your car gets stolen today. Jeff, you're thinking, oh, hell, now what? I've got to call the insurance, and it's a hassle. Maybe well, you know you're 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 taking Uber for a few days, and now you got to pay extra couple hundred dollars for this or that. I'll tell you but what. Doesn't re- I would be excited right. that I had a rental car too. He was actually <laughs> very aware of why having a rental car wasn't a good idea. 
Yes. Well, yeah, yeah, because, you know, the other car was such a distinct-looking car. Uh, was part of the... Um, Jeff, you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, okay. Uh, um, yeah, so I, I think that's part of it. It's just the... the, the, the ra- I think some random bad luck to you or I doesn't result in a shooting, but random bad luck on the west side of Chicago can really, you know, can can really change your world. And I think that's part of what happened. But also just the, the third, I think Sean in some ways was, or Triplett was unlucky that he, you know, that he was one when his father was killed. If Triplett's father was killed when he was 28 years old, maybe he would have had a, maybe he would have had a very different life. I don't know. But yeah, I think that's exactly right. Is that, you know, there's, you, you get choices and you do your best to sort of uh, increase your odds of, of not getting killed, but you know, on the west side of Chicago, anything can happen. Yeah, let me go back to the New Mexico State Park. First of all, for those that that aren't aware of your background, you coached for both Neil McCarthy at New Mexico State and, and the Bear at UTEP. You uh, you were a basketball and Lou, and guy. Lou Henson. And, yeah, and Lou Henson. And Lou Henson. Yeah, and, and Lou Henson at New Mexico yeah. State. And your yeah. your basketball chops are uh, they're they're legit. You, you you were a Chicago basketball guy and and. Then here in this area, you were a basketball guy here. Um, how did that get you to, uh, I guess, in, in a, the Cliff Notes version, how did you uh, get to know Sean, and why is Sean and Russ Bradford a, a relationship that was ever built? Well, I think, I think the, 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 at the heart of recruiting is, you know, you try and forge a friendship with the recruit. And the idea, of course, is so that the kid likes you well enough that he cannot tell you no. The, the recruit's going to tell two or three or ten schools no and one school yes. And I just think that my feeling was, the way I learned the business, was that kids, you know, people make choices based on who they're the most comfortable with. So I learned pretty early on to stop with the sales talk stuff about why UTEP or New Mexico State's the best program or the big crowds or the championship this or that or the you, you said all that in, in, in you know, over over time but most of what I did was recruits was just just chat them up you know be friends with well I can now with Chicago kids I can talk the talk yeah because I know you know I knew the city and knew the league and I play you know I coached against Marshall at one point and 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 I'd seen Sean play so many times in high school that I could just I could just talk the talk with them, you know and and, and if you look at my my list of recruits from I, I signed one flop after another from California <laughs> but one but but one great player after another from Chicago I could just I I, I had a feeling for the you know, not just to talk to the kids, but I knew what it meant. You know, if the kid averages 25 a game at Albuquerque Academy, that might not that 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 might not mean as much as averaging 25 a game at, at you know at, at you know Manzano or or, or whatever the Del Norte or whatever. You know, or, and if a kid averages 25 a game at Mesilla Valley Christian here in town, if I well, I could I, I could I could gauge Chicago, and I knew. It, it, you know, I knew the place inside and out. I mean, I mentioned this in the book, I think, is that I never, I, I just, I, they would say, do you want a map at the rental car counter? I said, nope, don't need a map. <laughs> and that was, and that was just, I don't, you know, this is all before the, you know, cell phones and sure. and Google Maps. I, I just, I knew the city inside and out. I did not need the map. Uh, you know, I could have, I could I could have written the map. You know, I could have written the map of Chicago basketball. All right, so now is the part of the interview where Russ and I kind of veered off course a little bit and talked about a, a friend of mine since college. Uh, he was roommates with some high school, uh, some of my best friends from high school and, and who I graduated with, and Brandon Mason, who is the former Aggie basketball star and current UNM Lobo basketball assistant coach and did not play for Russ at New Mexico State. 
but he did play for us in Ireland as a professional basketball player overseas in Ireland. And we, uh, we veer off course just a little bit off the book topic and talk a little bit about Brandon Mason here and then talk about get back into the NMSU connection and Russ's time as an assistant there when he had Sean Harrington at New Mexico State when he recruited him there and, and what kind of transpired while Sean was there at New Mexico State. One, one tie to Chicago that I'll just sort of mention that uh, is a friend of mine from college. We went to college at the same time together, and he's still a good friend of mine. And he's up here in Albuquerque as Brandon Mason. Was, uh, oh, good. And, and you know Brandon, obviously. Um, well, I, I coached him in Ireland. I know. I, my, pad, Paddy on star, the hardwood. He was my star player in Ireland. I love, so uh, I, I love Brandon. I love Brandon Mason. Yeah, I love uh, I loved Patty on the hardwood. Me and Brandon are still good friends, and uh, I give him a hard time. But he uh, he would get mad at me if I didn't mention him uh, to as much as I can. He likes uh, saying hi to everybody he knows. He's a very positive guy. How good of a basketball player was he? Well, he was a very good player, but where he was a great player was when the game was on the line. Like if it wasn't an important game, you know, or was it? easier game, you know, he'd have his, you know, 12 points and six assists, but when the game was on the line, he just went, in the biggest games, he was just fabulous, and he was kind of, you know, he was kind of fearless, he was, he, he uh, but I also learned a lot from him, in that the first, the first practice, you know, I yelled at him, like, Brandon, that's your guy, and he yelled back at me, that's not my guy, and I thought, no one had ever done that, and I thought, well, you know, because in Ireland, if you're going to change Americans, you got to do it quick, you do it early, you don't want to wait till 50, and I thought, I don't want to send Brandon if he's going to yell back at me. I can't coach a guy who's going to yell back at me. But let me, you know, and Lou, Lou Henson had suggested I take him, and Lou is, in, you know, so Lou is involved. But 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 the, so the next the next time day, I thought about it a lot because I liked him. I knew he was a good kid. I knew that yelling back wasn't really the kind of kid he was. But I just thought so. The next time it happened, uh, the next practice, I was called him over. And I whispered to him. I said, Brandon, you've got to front the guy in the low post. And he whispered back. He said, I know, Coach, I was helping too much. I'll do it next time. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That's interesting. I learned an important lesson. Like, you you, not every kid wants to get yelled at or needs to get yelled at or responds to it. So I learned a lot from him about, you know, uh, all right, he, you know, he doesn't do well with, with that kind of – he does better. Like, one thing about Brandon Mason, you didn't have to coach effort. Yeah. You know, he was he was crazy effort, you know, like – and you didn't have to coach – you know, tell him, don't be selfish. So he was unselfish and, and trying hard. So I just thought, you know, all right, I'm going to whisper to him. So it was a big, it was a big moment for me, like realizing, oh, okay, I'll whisper to this guy for the rest. So I whispered to him the rest of the season. I never yelled at him ever again. <laughs> I wonder how much whispering he does now that he's a officially an assistant coach for of one year now. Well, I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know, but I've been saying for a long time. He's got a huge. He's one of those guys who can talk to the janitor and the general will like him, and he can talk to the college president and the president will like him, and yeah. he can meet the you know the head you know the head you know the head of Kirkland Air Force Base and he'll like him, but he can meet the you know the gangbanger guy. You know, like he just can, he can just he can he can switch you know he can switch into a lot of gears to talk to people, which I think is really important for recruiting. There was something. I mean, you you were pretty open about this. I mean, you working at New Mexico State still. I'm a little interested if you were in in any way apprehensive about how honest you were about your time at New Mexico State as an assistant, because you were brutally honest. Your your time there. You you mentioned at one point in the book there was ten years where you guys didn't recruit a high school kid, and, and you weren't there the whole time. But no, I. 
when I, yeah, when I when I arrived in New Mexico State, we had signed eighty one high school, eighty one junior college players in a row. But you know, I, I mean, I think I, I think there's people in New Mexico State that won't be happy with the book. But I'm not. I don't think I'm harder on anyone. I'm, I'm harder on myself, I think, than anyone else in New Mexico State. And that's interesting. Um, let's, let's. Why are you hard on yourself? Because you, you are. You're, you're pretty open about. You feel. Well, I think you let Sean know. Well, part of it, I think, is as a writer. I, I know for me, uh, I don't want to argue politics, but I, I find I find that people have all the answers to be less believable, and so I, I, I just think it's, it's a more believable speaker, you know, in my case, or writer that's willing to say, you know, willing to point the lens at himself and and, and and make himself look culpable, make himself look bad. And I, you know, I think I I had plenty, you know, I think I have plenty to atone for. But the truth also, Jeff, is as much as I love being part of Sean's life now and talking to Sean and, you know, feeling like I, something good has happened for Sean. There's a lot of guys I don't ever want to see again that I coached at New Mexico State. And, and I, I'm not writing books about anybody else. I don't, you know, there's plenty. Sometimes a call will come in or a voicemail or an email and I think somebody wants, you know, somebody, I, there's, there's just, any, you know, there, there's just a lot of guys. It's not that I'm trying to help every kid, you know. Well, this, I, this, but this this seemed like a guy who was worth uh, deserved the help. Well, let me let me do one more little read from this book because I, I put a few post-it notes in here, things I wanted to ask you. And, and speaking to that very point, it's from your postscript, and you you say before anyone commends me for my perseverance, <clears throat> let me confess, I occasionally get calls from former players. They want to help getting back into school, finding a team overseas, landing a post basketball job or paying a delinquent bill. Most of these guys I cannot or do not support. There are more than a few ex-players who I have no interest in ever seeing again. Anyone who has coached at a high level for a long time will understand this. The truth is that if Sean had not been shot, I likely would have never seen him again. That that seems to be a kind of an admission of, of uh, this is a guy you wish you had a relationship with, and yet it took something like this for you to to kind of get that relationship going again. Is is that does that sound about right? I think that's right. I think I think there's an odd phenomenon sometimes when some violence or tragedy happens that it can bring people together in surprising ways. So you know, if you'd have said to me, if you'd have said to me five years ago, you know. You know, you'll be talking to Sean Harrington every two days for the next few <laughs> years. I just, I just wouldn't have, I wouldn't have believed it. But I think, I think, I think he's a special. As, as I mentioned in the book, he's a special kid, and he was always. You know, all Chicago kids, nearly all Chicago kids, or the ones I've coached, were all tough guys and were fighters, and they knew how to play. But Sean was like, he's a little bit like Lou Henson was like this too. I think once when the game started, Lou was trying to knock your head off. Yeah. And then when the game, as soon as the game was over, he could cross this line and just be like, "Hello, it's nice to see." And I just like I, I have great, I can't do that, but I have great admiration for. It. And Sean could do that as as soon as practice was over, he's done trying to claw your eyes out and he's hugging everybody and. And, and I have great admiration for that, that he can kind of keep things in perspective. And I said this about, you know, like, he's the only guy I've, like, I remember going to the women's game and he was leading the cheers and stomping and getting everybody right. going, you know, like, it was just, you know, he was an unusual, an unusual young man in that way. Um, I can tell you, you know, the, yeah, he, well, I was going to say on, on the Lou Henson comment that you made, I, I was a reporter at the roundup there at New Mexico State covering Lou Henson. And uh -huh. I... 
you know, entering this, this journalism realm, I was, I was, I knew I kind of had to be cynical a little bit and, and question everything. And I had a hard time for a while reconciling that Lou Henson was genuinely nice off the court and genuinely, you know, uh, 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 intense, or intense competitor on the court. And, and I had a hard time for a while believing that he wasn't putting on just a kind of a fake front on, on either side. And, and now I absolutely believe that Lou Henson is, is both an intense competitor. I, th- I thought he's either crazy or he's a saint, but let's see what happens after we lose a tough game. Yeah. So, you know, pretty, pretty early in that first year, we lost a tough game. We blew it at the end or whatever it was. And I thought, now we're going to see what he's really like. And he said, now, listen, you guys, we're a lot better than what we showed tonight. Now, how many, raise your hand if you, if you think we can play better than we did tonight. <laughs> you know, and, and so, of course, everybody raises their hand. That's right. We can play. Now, what time is still? We need to come in and work hard. And let's get our hands in together. And okay, everybody. You know, and I thought, oh, my God. I can picture that. All right. Well, there was a little, like I said, a little veering off course a bit and talking about uh, talking with Russ about Brandon Mason and his time at New Mexico State. But getting back to the book, uh, one of the themes that Russ kind of writes about throughout the book is this code of silence where victims of gun violence don't really talk to one another about what they've been through. and, And it kind of caught him off guard how many connections to gun violence there were just in this one very small Marshall High community and he he speaks here a little bit about what he hopes comes out of this book that maybe in the power of telling our stories and the power of the spoken word and the written word and telling these stories could help us all get through these epidemics like gun violence in Chicago or or elsewhere um, and that's one of the things that you know that, that, that you talk, you go to the west side and talk to people for long enough and you really everybody's been touched by the violence yeah. And everybody has a story to tell. And that's one of the confusing things to me is that, that Sean did not know Tim Triplett's story and Tim Triplett did not know Sean's story. You see how I am, Jeff. My, my, my impulse is let's talk about this until, until, we, until, until we're blue in the face, until we're hoarse. We talked about it. We just let's just beat it to death by talking about it. I'm a talker, and I yeah. want to talk about it. And and I and I think, but I do think there's a power. I think in telling our stories, you know, that we sort of get, we, it gives us a certain power and control over our lives. You know, until we talk about, I, I mean, I learned that from Nolan Richardson. Do we need to talk about race as much as Nolan Richardson does? Maybe not. But if we never talk about it. You know, we're still, we're still. I think we're still dealing with things in this country that that happened hundreds of years ago. And part of the problem is that people won't talk about it, and so so you know, people don't want to hear it. and They don't want to hear the, you know. But I think until we have hard conversations, we can't move forward. You know, and and so I, I think that that's, um, you know, Sean is not hesitant about telling telling his telling his story, but but. Uh, but I think I think until you know, and it, so it, it seems odd to me that that a coach and a player who both had a parent murdered wouldn't know that about the other. Yeah, they never even talked about it. Yeah. Well, don't, don't you think? Don't you think if if, if the Albuquerque Journal hired a guy who'd worked at the Roundup, he'd be like, "Dude, I worked at the Roundup." You know, like it seems like it would come up. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly, and 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 in this case. You know, you're in the, and, and I, I get the idea that the basketball is often a, re, a release and a way to get away from this for a lot of the kids. And I think that's part of what's happened also, by the way, is that this idea that nearly all the players that got killed were kids who were done playing. Yeah. And so there's, there's this idea, you know, that I, I think Hoop Dreams is the best documentary film ever made, but there's one thing about it that sort of sticks with me is those kids were freaks. They were genetic freaks. They were good enough to get scholarships. 
And the truth is that most guys play and don't get a scholarship. I know that from myself, Jeff. I practiced all the time, and I wasn't good enough to get in the games in Division Three. And so I, I, I think that you know, there's plenty of kids who dedicate their lives to basketball, and there's no payoff. Other than it keeps them out of trouble for a couple of years, but when those couple of years are over, you, know, you hope that they've gotten the discipline and the hard work, and they, you know, they know how to work and show up on time from from basketball. But when there when there's no, you know, when when there's when your family's a mess and the team is gone, what are you what are you left with? Well, that was Russ Bradbird, and those were some highlights from a very lengthy interview I did with him earlier this week, and I appreciate Russ for giving me so much time. Um, those were some, like I said, just some of the highlights from our conversation about all the dreams we've dreamed, the the book of his that came out, hit bookshelves on Tuesday, and is now on sale, and the book is, the theme, the the central character, I should say, in, in the book is, is Sean Harrington, and Sean Harrington, the former Aggie who was shot in 2014, I thought it best that I probably give Sean a call too to write this story and and check in with him and and have him talk about the book a little bit about how his life has changed since that November I'm sorry since that January 2014 morning when when his life changed and he's been in a wheelchair ever since a bullet injured his spinal cord while he was protecting his daughter and talked to him a little bit about why he ever went back to the west side of Chicago in the first place and he he explains it's it's a love of kids not only his kids he has two daughters um but also just a love of helping kids in general and that's why he went back to Marshall High and was working there as an assistant coach and and was helping kids when the shooting happened uh finally got a job back with the Chicago Public Schools and happens to be stationed at Marshall High which is what he wants but he technically doesn't work for Marshall High he is a restorative justice coordinator, as he describes it, and uh, works for Chicago Public Schools, but he is stationed at Marshall High, which is which is to his liking. And, and we talk a little bit about that, but the first part of what you'll hear now is me asking Sean uh, when he goes out on talks, um, and he does plenty of them, talks about gun violence around the Chicago area. When he goes out on talks, how does he describe what happened that morning of Jan- in January of 2014 when his life changed? It was just a, a that's not an ordinary day for me. Something I've been doing every day for the past three years. Uh, you know, dropped my daughter off at, at school on my way to work. Uh, so it was not um, only only thing unroutine about that morning was uh, that I was in the rental car. Other than that, that's has been my, what I've been doing every month for the last for the uh, uh, every day. Uh, then my family changed so. Sometimes I to that corner that morning, just seeing guys hang on the corner with the normal. But for whatever reason, these guys kind of appeared out of nowhere and went on and was playing at my car. And after that, it was after that it was all kind of you know flashing and in the blur. I just remember gun shots going off and I could never stop and just trying to protect my daughter by all means. I was going to say, and, and you did, obviously. I mean, for, for those that don't know, that haven't read the book yet or don't know your story, I mean, you, you protected your daughter. I don't know how, how often you, you retell this story or, or how often you think about that, but the reality is you you yeah. you were the reason. A bullet went through you because you were covering up your daughter and protecting your daughters. Is that is that right? Uh, it's pretty true. That's true assessment. I mean, yes. And, and I like that, but... I, 
everybody like, well, I don't see myself as a hero. I was doing what I think any 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 real dad would do. To protect, to protect the child. I really don't talk about it unless I'm asked about it. Yeah. So I don't. Um, and um, so I, you know, I, I mean, I, I tell a story that I have to, but for the most part, eventually I've moved on from it, so I don't have to go back. Yeah. Uh, and revisit it. I hate, you know, it took three years. I'm glad that the case is over with, and you know, and, and I was I was able to receive justice. One out of maybe a thousand cases, I was able to receive justice. So I kind of look. look Try to move on as much as I can. And and why don't you? And and what are you doing right now, though? You're you're kind of you have a new role. Are you still at Marshall since the book ended? I don't know if anything's yeah, changed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this, yes, the, um, it, it created another position for me there called restored. It's a restored justice coordinator. Basically, I'm sick resolution, and it's basically a duty of one of the dean. They're shorthanded with the dean, so I kind of kind of one of the deans. Do we just kind of. Uh, conflict resolution with with the kids, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, most of the time, I'm talking to the kids before it becomes a physical altercation. And most times, and sometimes it's for the physical altercation. We try to get to the bottom of uh, the means of what will cause the two students to want to fight. Most of the time, if you get to the bottom line of this, something with social media, something started on social media. Why are you so loyal to Marshall? Oh my God. I, I mean, I was just brought up that way. I mean, my whole family went to Marshall. I've been a part of Marshall for the longest. And everybody that I know has been to Marshall with me had the, the same loyalty yeah. uh, to Marshall. I mean, that's what that's a commando. That's what being a commando is about. Everybody that I know, I can, anybody that I can introduce you to from a commando has the same loyalty to Marshall that I have. You know, if you remember in the book, my mom went to Marshall also. Yeah, yeah. And, so my, my mom was pregnant with me as a senior, so I, I was literally in Marshall before I was on this earth. So from his loyalty to Marshall High, which is the high school, again, featured in the great documentary Hoop Dreams from the 1990s, one of the schools documented in there. Uh, Sean Harrington talks about his loyalty to Marshall High to this day, and he also has fond memories of his time in New Mexico State playing for the Aggies. So that is an interesting um, opinion of New Mexico State all these years later, especially after finding out that his recollection of why he left the school maybe wasn't um, the same as what Russ Bradbird's recollection of why he left. And Russ says the coaching staff pushed him out. Sean never even realized that was happening. And I asked him, since you now know that maybe the coaches didn't want you there anymore and maybe you're not feeling um, as welcome or as part of the team at New Mexico State all those years ago, probably had a little something to do with the coach's decision that they didn't want you there anymore and and how did you feel about that and here's what sean said about that of course of course they'll betrayed i mean i didn't know that whole part of the story but i was at, at kind of at the point I was kind of looking on my own to relocate when i found out that they were trying to recruit another guard but i didn't know you know about them him kind of um slacking off from you know, interacting with me 
of some sort. But in, in, a, in a strange way, I told Russ, I said, well, maybe Coach Bethard is uh, justified for treating you the way he did when you was coming to recruit me in high school. Then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Luther Bedford did, and, and right. it, it, that's in the book too, but Luther did kind of give him... Yeah. Give him a hard time about look, man. I, I don't trust recruiters that say they're going to take care of my kids. Like you have to show me, you have to prove right. it. So after all that, what is it exactly that Sean now feels about having his book or having his life encapsulated in in a in a book? And what does he want out of this book? Um, on a little bit of a side note, Russ Bradbird is sharing fifty fifty all proceeds from this book with Sean. Um, and still helps him out with some fundraising and other other advocacy things he can do to help him with healthcare or, or setting up a, um, speaking engagements and things like that. But proceeds from the book are going to go 50-50 between Sean and, and Russ Bradbird. And so what does Sean want out of this book, and how does he feel about the fact that there is now a book about his life? I mean, I'm still in awe about the same thing. I'm still, I, I still find myself... Forgetting to tell people, like, yeah, my book's available on Amazon. So, I mean, it's a, it's on in itself, in itself. And I'm still all about the fact that like, there's literally a hard cover book out on, on my life. So, uh, <laughs> I'm still grasping that, but I'm, I mean, I'm excited and nervous all at the same time, to be honest with you. What do you hope comes from this book? I mean, do you have any thoughts or, or hopes that people take from this book something that maybe they don't already know? Um... I never really man, you know, these are kids that I work with every day, and kind of. But I won't let my uh, my situation with them handle me from hurting, handle me from hurting other kids. So, um, and, and just that, uh, you know, I'm saying everything I do is to revolve around helping kids. So hopefully, maybe this one day, one of the kids that I'm helping to use, helping to use sports as a tool to continue their education. And so after all that, after his life has changed since being shot in 2014, just doing what any dad would do, he says, and and protecting his daughter. And he's been wheelchair bound ever since. And with every reason to be bitter and and angry about what happened, Sean remarkably still has a pretty positive outlook on everything and still wants to help kids, is happy about where he's at, is happy he is still in the west side of Chicago doing what he can to, to help other kids avoid the same pitfalls that led to the kids who ended up shooting him, both of whom are in prison now. They have been convicted. And Sean still wants to help kids and still wants to be in the west side of Chicago and and says his life is, is a blessed one and, and he feels blessed every day. So his, his outlook on things is pretty remarkable, all things considered. And to wrap things up, here's Sean talking about how his life has been since he was shot in 2014, since the books come out, and and his general perspective on life right now. It's truly been it's truly been one blessing after another, Jeff. You know, for the situation that God has truly blessed me, and so that's why I uh, pass my blessings on so that I can, uh, you know, make make room for the next blessing. That's amazing to hear you say. You know, talk about the blessings you've been given and and uh, the way you kind of. 
pay it forward is pretty cool, man. So I appreciate your time. Definitely. And, definitely. and uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully some people buy this book. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. All right, man. Hey, Sean, I appreciate you. Thank you for your time, man. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. All right. Well, there you have it. There's some portions of a couple of interviews I did earlier this week with Russ Bradbird, the author of All the Dreams We've Dreamed, and Sean Harrington, the former New Mexico State basketball player who was shot in 2014 and whose life is really the the central three, central theme and, and kind of main character, if you will, of of that book, All the Dreams We've Dreamed. And I appreciate both Russ and Sean for sharing so much time with me and, and their stories with me. The book is a good one. I, I will say I hope some of you uh, give it a chance and, and give it a read. So it went on sale Monday or, or Tuesday, rather, May 1st, and is on sale now at all the places you can find books online or, or in bookstores. So not sure when the next episode of the Talking Grammar podcast will come out. Hopefully much sooner than this one took between episodes eight and nine. Hopefully episode 10 will be will be here in the next week or so. And again, I appreciate you guys for listening. I always appreciate the feedback. You can email me anytime, ggrammar at abqjournal.com. You can find me on Twitter anywhere, anytime, and that's at Jeff Grammar. And uh, let me know what you think of the podcast. Let my editors know too. Alrighty guys, I appreciate it again. Thanks for listening to Talking Grammar.